Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and consultant to the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. Last time we talked about what constitutes bad advice when it comes to dating, but now let's flip it around and talk about some of the behaviors that keep relationships and the people in it happy. I have to admit, I'm kind of filled with nostalgia today because as we record, my parents are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, their golden anniversary. That's pretty incredible. Happy anniversary, mom and dad. It seems like the perfect time to talk about what patterns and behaviors actually keep people together. While much is individual, there are certain things on which we do have empirical evidence, such as the research we mentioned previously by John Gottman, about how much kindness matters in communication and general well-being of romantic relationships. Another important observation that Gottman made is that partners often make so-called bids for each other's attention and that long-term relationship success hinges in part on how often partners turn toward each other during those bids. So, for example, one partner might say, hey, check out that beautiful goldfinch on the windowsill. And then the other partner can either go, mm-hmm, and keep staring at his phone, or it might instead look at the bird and say, oh yeah, how neat. Look, today we're talking about dating with the hopes of being in a happy relationship, not marriage per se. And on that note, first, congratulations to your parents. And also, I think it's important to say here that there is such thing as having a successful relationship, even if it's just for a season of life. I'm an example of that. I've had several long-term relationships and I wouldn't consider myself unsuccessful in love, quite the opposite. I found those relationships to be successes, just not the end of the road for me. And so we want to allow space for that too. A relationship can be considered happy, healthy, functional, and successful for as long as the people involved mutually agree that it is those things. So whether or not you consider marriage your goal, I think it's helpful to look at traditional wedding vows for insight into what makes for a successful long-term relationship. Being a non-religious person myself, I typically approach old words steeped in a particular religious tradition with what I'd like to think is healthy skepticism. But if those words tend to be common across different religious traditions and or if they follow the principle of the golden rule, or even better, the platinum rule of treat others the way they want to be treated, that really compels our attention because that suggests principles that transcend a given ideology that have worked for people across time and across cultures. So if we look at what I think are traditional Christian wedding vows, for example, they talk about for better or worse and sickness and health, all that jazz. Two common themes emerge from those set of vows. One is, are both you and the person you're with ready to not be a fair weather partner? Are you both prepared to work through bumps in the road rather than cut and run when the going gets tough? And not to sidetrack us too much, but there I also want to emphasize the both part. If just one of you is really working on things, that's not a healthy dynamic, and we're not upholding that as something to aspire to or stick around for. But, so the first theme is, are you both invested? And the second is the willingness to not be self-focused. 
A healthy relationship is about really caring about the other person's needs and desires to a high degree where you see the value in making them happy and simultaneously they care about your needs and your wants to a high degree and see the value of making you happy. So essentially that boils down to, is there equitable give and take in your relationship? Not perfect 50-50 all the time, but does your relationship strongly center around one partner's needs and preferences or are both partners willing to give energy, effort, and interest just as easily as they would expect that of the other partner? Now, if you look at the data on long-term happiness in relationships, things look pretty bleak. As Logan Yuri also mentions in her book, How to Not Die Alone, there is basically a linear reduction of happiness on average the longer two people are married. Infatuation isn't meant to last for more than a few years, though. Nobody would get anything done in society if it did. But we do know there are those couples that somehow manage to keep the romance alive, even though most couples are actually not very happy in the long run. In her writings, such as her book, Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, Esther Perel describes the paradox that while love seeks closeness, desire benefits from distance. She recommends against complete fusion between the two lovers involved and says that everyone should cultivate a secret garden. Michelle, how do you think people should go about doing that? Well, I think it begins with motivation motivation to do that instead of resistance to the idea. It's common to have resistance to instead feel like the goal is to share everything with your partner. But as Esther Perel and other experts tell us, the happiest couples share a lot, but also value their individual personhood. Once we're motivated to do it, it can be surprising how easy it can be, or if not easy, how creative people can get to achieve a goal. So to find the motivation, again, I think there's wisdom in understanding why certain sayings seem to withstand the test of time. In this case, I'm thinking of don't put all your eggs in one basket. The idea being if something happens to that basket, you lose everything. So instead, diversify at least some. There's obviously a value in investing a lot in a good investment. But even if you're 100% sold on your relationship as the best thing since sliced bread, you still need to understand that factors outside of your control will always exist. And while we don't like to think about losing our relationship, if you should lose your relationship for whatever reason, even something temporary, like if one of you has to be out of town for an extended time, but also if it's something permanent, like you aren't meant to be, if that happens, you don't want to lose yourself as well as the relationship. And even if you're not taking a risk management or preparation-based approach, but rather a self-growth approach to understanding this problem, it's important to continue to grow and nurture yourself as an individual alongside the growth and nurturance you are putting into your relationship. It's empowering to you to know you prefer life with your partner, but you also know how to be okay without them. Also, if it helps with your motivation to invest in yourself, recall that when you met this person, you had a life of your own, and that was part of what attracted this person to you. So it follows that maintaining that maintains the person your partner was attracted to in the first place. It's interesting how the pandemic has brought some couples closer together and has led to more sex for some who suddenly found themselves spending more time at home with each other while other relationships fell apart and many marriages ended in divorce. Michelle, from your experience as a therapist, what kinds of things have made people fall into one category or the other? Well, primarily, I think it's what they discover about their compatibility, about do they work together well as a team? Do they work together well to manage stress? 
but also about, as we've been discussing, do they know how to make each other happy and do they care to? Related to that, a lot of people are familiar with the idea of the five love languages by Gary Chapman, which is this theory that there are different ways that different people feel loved and that you should try to meet them with the things that make them feel loved rather than what makes you feel loved. The five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gifts, and physical affection. Both the theory and Chapman himself have come under quite a bit of criticism, including accusations of homophobia and racism. Separately from that, though, the fundamental idea that the platinum rule should apply, meaning treat others the way they want to be treated, has struck a chord with many. If I had to choose between the five love languages, if we try to play with that paradigm, it's definitely the case that I value words of affirmation and quality time much more than, for example, gifts. Maybe that explains why I didn't marry Rich. How about you, Michelle? What makes you feel loved in a relationship? Well, of the love languages, I actually am a gift person, and I feel the need to explain for us others out there who fall into the, I forget, the gift gift giving or gift receiving, I guess, choice of the five love languages. So actually with that, it's not about the cost of the gift. It's about the thoughtfulness of the gift. And so really it's about how well is your partner paying attention to the things that really speak to you and maybe even uniquely to you and how much are they thinking about you when they're not always with you so i was out and i saw this thing that reminded me of you and so i bought it you had said something the other day and when i saw this it made me think of that and i love that sort of stuff so i'm um, actually gift receiving i guess is one of my love languages and i would say the other one for me is physical touch and so those are my main ones i mean i think there's a lot to value from each of them, but those are definitely the ones that rise to the top for me. But as you said, there's criticisms to be had of this model. Not every way of feeling love necessarily falls under one of these five love languages. So for example, for me, another thing that makes me feel loved is feeling like my partner respects me and is proud of me. And that can take many forms of including several of the different love languages. So if I'm having a rough day and my partner makes an effort to make it easier on me and doesn't act like that's a big deal or anything to feel resentful about, that's acts of service. But one time my boyfriend attended a talk I gave and told me after how much he loved seeing me in my element professionally and how proud he was. And that's words of affirmation. Or when a man I was dating at the time donated to the nonprofit I had founded, that's gift giving. But it wasn't a single love language that represented respect and pride. Respect and pride were at the core, and there were numerous ways to express that. So you said what makes you feel loved is typically words of affirmation and quality time. Does your husband have the same love language as you to the extent that we want to use that language? No, actually, he's more of an acts of service kind of guy. And it's not always easy to remember this about each other because people all have the natural tendency to fall back into the golden rule, treating others like they want to be treated rather than sticking with the platinum rule. I really appreciate acts of service. So, for example, my husband is a great cook and I really, really do appreciate what he makes for us. But much of the time, the lovey-dovey feelings really come more from words of affirmation and the time we spend together. How about you? What love language does your boyfriend enjoy? 
So actually we have compatible love languages and that has made it easy for us to connect and feel very cared for from each other. Uh, meaning, and when I say compatible, I mean, we have the same love languages. Whereas in a past relationship I'm thinking of, we had different ones in fact. So mine, as I said, were more gift giving and physical touch. He had physical touch as one too, but his other was also um, was acts of service. And so this will cause problems for us sometimes because we, and I think it has to do with the distinction you were making. I would appreciate the things he would do, but it wasn't necessarily what made me feel loved and vice versa. And so in that case, he would do things like mow the lawn and I, not particularly detail oriented with, with household stuff like that, would come home and not notice that he had mowed the lawn. And I would come in and I might say something sweet. So another weird thing about me is while my own love languages are gifts and physical touch, I'm very good at giving words of affirmation. I, I'm very vocal about how much I appreciate somebody and the things I love about them. And so, you know, I breeze in the door and say something sweet to him and go about like making dinner or something. And at some point he's like, did you notice that I mowed the lawn? And he looked so hurt that I didn't notice because he was doing it to, you know, show me that he cared and I just didn't oh. notice. And that's one example. But that kind of thing would happen all the time or I'd be incredibly vocal about how much I appreciated him and thought he was great. But then when I didn't notice his acts of service or when I didn't do acts of service, because as, as you said, I was kind of less inclined to think in that way because it's not my natural love language it left him feeling unloved and, or not as loved as he could be. And so that problem that you mentioned that so often comes up, came up for us, that we had trouble really respecting each other's love language. So again, bringing focus to that idea of the platinum rule rather than the golden rule. And when that doesn't happen, it contributes to frustration and feeling lonely, even though you're in a relationship. So. I'm a fan of the five love languages, though I do acknowledge that they have limitations. I still use that approach a fair amount as a therapist, actually, especially uh, teaching that point of learning what your partner's love language is and being intentional to use that rather than your own to show love towards them. And I also encourage my clients, take the five love language quiz together and see what it says, but use that as a starting off point for discussion about what they each view their love language as or love language is to be rather than the quiz giving you the answer. And similarly, if they want to spin off from that and say, well, that reminds me, it's not one of these five things, but another way that you can show me that I'm loved. It's a conversation starter more than anything else, but it is important that each partner take away from the conversation what the other partner is telling them about this is how I can feel loved. You know, I think these are such great points because as is often the case with these kinds of quizzes, there's usually not just one love language for one person. And even if let's say somebody has the love language of words of affirmation, that doesn't mean that the other person can now slack off on the things that need doing in the household and say, oh, well, I thought that acts of service don't matter to you. It's like, wait a second, there's still stuff that needs doing, right? And, uh, and then we know that there are all sorts of weird gender dynamics there also that come into play and and also just generally that you know the studies show that people tend to overestimate how much they've each contributed to things getting done so you know if you ask people i mean there's a study 
already when I was in college, like this was like 20 years ago, that was all about what percentage of household duties or something do you think you do? And then basically the average couple ended up with more than a hundred percent. You're very familiar with that one. So anyway, I mean, one thing I also want to add here is that I've heard stories that boil down to, especially men telling women in relationships, my love language is physical affection. So if you want to be a good partner, you're going to have to give me sex more often or whatever. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Like you can express preferences, but love languages, which again are only questionably a thing in the first place, they're not commandments. Like that doesn't take away the need for consent or anything like that. So it doesn't work like that. And sometimes people aren't going to be a match on this stuff. Like you explained, if one partner, for example, requires a level of quality time that the other partner either can't provide or feels uncomfortable giving, then maybe the couple will ultimately need to part ways. It's pretty basic. If you truly need something to be happy and you're not getting that thing, you might have to break things off. I agree. I do think at the end of the day, compatibility on core values, ways of seeing and responding to the world, and caring about each other enough to apply the platinum rule consistently are the keys to long-term relationships. I think that's exactly right. Ultimately, compatibility on core values will either bring the platinum rule closer to the golden rule, or at least will make the platinum rule more palatable. If someone can give their partner what the partner needs without feeling like they're compromising their own values in the process, that's going to have the highest odds of success. sum up what we covered today so far. The long-term happiness of a couple is the exception rather than the rule. Intentional positive behaviors are necessary on the part of both partners to keep satisfaction high. Pay attention to your partner, both in terms of immediate bids and in terms of what makes them feel loved. Apply the platinum rather than the golden rule. Understand that there can be a trade-off between closeness and keeping desire alive. Try not to spend 100% of your time with your partner because you want there to be some room to discover new things about each other. Irina, what's a story from when you really felt loved in a relationship? There are so many. I feel like I've definitely encountered partners over my lifetime that made efforts to to make me feel loved, whether it was saying nice things, right? Because often these things are not one big story. Often they are things that ultimately are more part of the everyday life of the couple. And so a lot of it really is like how the daily interactions are going down. Like, I feel like I'm a fairly low-key kind of person in that way actually so like the grand gestures are great and, and some of those are definitely wonderful in all sorts of ways but at the end of the day it's really people saying positive things to you really noticing the good things that you do and and pointing them out and i think that ultimately also leads to their own happiness because if they realize if they take the time to develop that gratitude and that sense that you are contributing to their life and they show you how you're contributing to their life, that's great. And on the flip side, right, like the things that for me, I think have been 
major contributors to when the relationship ultimately started going not in not such a great direction was when people were taking me for granted and also were just sort of starting to get generally very moody, I'm going to say, where they were you know, focusing on the negatives, focusing on what they weren't getting or what was often not right with their life that didn't necessarily have that much to do with me, but then they sort of were making me feel like I should fix it. So to me, that's like the opposite of words of affirmation, that kind of withdrawing and that silence, ultimately the silence. So I really like to sum up, like I really like a very interactive relationship, like what you were saying about how you're very good about giving people positive feedback. I'm the same way. Like I like to be vocal about the positives and I like to take time to notice because we can all just kind of like go from one day to the next and everything kind of blends together. And that's even been even more true with the pandemic. And it's been hard on everyone. Everything turns kind of great. But if you say like, oh, wow, like you did such a great job with such and such, or thanks for doing that, or all of that, like that makes me feel good. And I think it's also the kind of thing that incentivizes the person to do more good things. So I think ultimately that benefits the giver just as much as the recipient. It just creates this kind of cycle of virtue. What about you, Michelle? What do you think? Or what stories do you have? Well, I've got I've got a story or so I could share, but I also just really want to reiterate a lot of some of the things you said, because I think it really bears emphasis for our listeners. I mean, you, you said a lot that comes back to this idea of gratitude. And there's so many psychological studies that show the values to yourself of being gracious, of having gratitude for the things that are going on, going well in your life and for the people who contribute to that. So, you know, having gratitude is certainly not going to hurt anything and will likely help both you and your relationship. And, and again, it kind of reminded me of one of those old sayings, happy wife, happy life. And the idea that whether whatever kind of gender combination we're talking about in relationships, but that idea of when you keep the other person happy, it does tend to create a cyclical, then they are more inclined to make you happy as well. So look, even if you got to throw it back to some easy to remember little rule of thumb, I think that one also has stuck around for a reason. You know, you also brought up the idea of, yes, in partnerships, we should be able to acknowledge the negatives and feel like we can turn to our partner when times are rough or when we're stuck with something, but not to focus on those negatives. You said that's really like the opposite of words of affirmation. And it also made me think about what we were talking about earlier with the idea of if you put all your eggs in one basket, that means when a problem comes up, you now expect that this person is the person who should fix your problem rather than you should look to outside resources to address your problem. You know, you want to preserve your relationship as a happy place. So you want to find that balance of turning to your partner for help and support, but not bogging them down with the responsibility of solving a problem that you yourself haven't figured out how to solve. Why should they know how to solve it? And so finding that balance is really important and by diversifying and having not all of your investment in my partner and my life together as as the same as my life, um, then that's going to help you to be able to not become resentful if your partner can't solve your problem for you. 
so those were a few things you said I really wanted to emphasize, as well as what you said about the focus on day-to-day life. I think that is surprising to some people, and I think has been surprising to me a little bit as I have grown and matured. I think when I was younger, maybe I was more focused on grand gestures and things like, how hot is this person, you know, rather than Mm -hmm. how well do we support each other on the day-to-day how comfortable when we have nothing we have to do and we just have this downtime do we genuinely enjoy each other's company and so i really agree with you that things like that are important so sorry to take all that time to really just say i think you made a ton of great points but a story from when i felt loved in a relationship you know i the one that most readily comes to mind this was so thoughtful it was when i had defended my dissertation. So that was a big deal in my life. And after that, actually, I think I'm getting this wrong. It was when I had graduated from my doctoral program. So again, a big deal in my life. And my boyfriend at the time gave me three envelopes. And he told me I could open each of them. And each of them had a series of date plans in them. And I could pick whichever one I wanted to do. They all had a meal and an activity. And I could pick from the three which I wanted to do. I just thought it was the most romantic thing. All three of them were things that he knew I would enjoy. And in a way it was hard to pick, but the thing is I picked what I picked. He wasn't surprised in the end by the one I did pick, but he also wouldn't have been the type as I could see some people being to be like, oh, I was really hoping you'd pick the other one. You know, he really was about whatever I picked. And so he was really great with A, knowing me well enough, to propose something for fun and multiple things for fun that he knew I would like and go with what I picked. And similarly, that same boyfriend, he might've really been onto something because another thing I remember about him, and so the insight I guess I'm gonna give out here, at least it worked for me, was when you can show that you understand multiple choices that your partner would enjoy and that you are willing to give them the choice. So another thing he did, he knew I loved breakfast and brunch. I was just really into breakfast and brunch food, still am. But he made a menu for when I would spend the night over his house and he laminated it and he put it on the inside of his cabinet so I could pick and choose from the menu what he could make me or that we could make together for breakfast or brunch when I would stay over there. And it was choices. I could do anything from the menu. And he made it, you know, like a fake little cafe name. It was really lovely. And so I think just his attentiveness to the things that I enjoyed. And again, it reflects, you know, for me, my it's gift giving, but in a small and thoughtful way. And I was a big fan of that. So those were things that made me feel really loved that I do think are consistent with both making me feel like my partner respects me and is proud of me, but also that my partner listened to me and knows what I like. You know, I think so often you'll hear the opposite where one partner will say, where do you want to go to dinner? And the other partner will give an answer. And then the first partner is like, oh, really that? Like, you sure you don't want to do this? And so that happens a fair amount of the time. So I think when you do the opposite of that, when you can really, if you're asking what somebody's choice is, really care about what their choice is. And if you're going to ask, you know, I guess if you have a strong opinion of your own, maybe don't float a choice when you have an answer you're hoping for. So those are some that I can offer up. I I love that. And that does really sound wonderful. You know, the last thing is that just remind me. So, So my husband and I sometimes will sit there and flip through like, 
the Netflix previews or whatever. And we'll literally do that for long enough that, that we end up saying it's time to go to bed. Like we just give up. We've done it for half an hour. Like it's become this like inside joke, you know, where it's like, it's like, hey, you want to sit down and watch some previews? <laughs> but one thing, one thing I was gonna, um, one thing I was gonna ask you about is, you know, on that point about diversification, how much of that, how many problems do you think come from? For a lot of men historically, and you know, I'm hoping this is changing for younger generations, but sort of like men our age or older, how much do you think there's just been this almost like expectation that their partner, their spouse becomes their best friend and they don't really have friendships, like male or female friendships that are deep enough or that are of the type, I should say, I shouldn't even sort of you know, put a value on it necessarily, because you can have a deep friendship that consists of doing stuff together, but it's not the type of friendship where you would call up the friend or text the friend to discuss a problem. And so in the end, like it really does become about the female partner in like a heterosexual couple to fix the problems because there's kind of one else around. And combined with that, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about the topic I'm about to address, which is men don't always like to go to therapy. And so <laughs> sometimes it's like, well, you neither want to talk to friends, nor do you want to go to therapy. What should happen here? Or do you think I'm onto something? And so there are even studies that have shown exactly what you're saying, that when it comes to emotional issues, men much prefer if they're going to talk to anyone, talking to women than to other men. And so, as you said, within the context of a relationship that can make it awfully tempting for them to put all of that on their partner, if it's a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. And so there's that, but then also with therapy, both men and women are more likely if they have a gender preference to seek out female therapists. And it is because there is greater comfort talking about emotional issues with the female, as well as there is some sense of an emasculating sort of thing, acknowledging from one man to another that he doesn't have it all figured out or that he has emotions. And those things have been supported in studies to show that men on average aren't as comfortable with their emotional world, haven't developed it as much, and that men and women understand that on average, women are more comfortable with that, are more developed in their emotional intelligence. Now, again, that's not true of every man and every woman. We're talking about averages here, but absolutely, that's a thing both within relationships and within therapy. And it really can, for both of those reasons, create or contribute to a problem where the burden of take on my problems, solve my problems, be this kind of one-stop shop for me can happen, maybe particularly in heterosexual relationships. Yeah, or alternatively, that the man just doesn't talk about his problems to anyone, including the partner. But to me, that is also creating an expectation on the other person. So you might tell yourself, and look, certainly some women do that too, to be clear, you can basically tell yourself, well, I'm dealing with it. But if the way that you express yourself, like through your body language, even if it's not words, through your negative body language, through your negative affect, you are imposing a burden on the other person. And so you are expecting them to deal with it in a way that's not really fair. So 
what would you advise the other partner to do in that kind of a situation? Like, let's say they've tried their best. They, they themselves, let's say, this, do use some of the happy behaviors that we've talked about today, but the partner is sort of not on board, like short of breaking up, which like we said, eventually that's just what's going to have to happen, right? Is there anything kind of short of that that you should try or that's worth trying? Definitely. And probably, so the simple answer to that is effective communication around the issue. And so being able to have a clear, direct, non-judgmental conversation, non-defensive conversation around these things. So as you may guess, that's a lot easier said than done. And so typically to do that, most often, it's going to involve a therapist to help facilitate that discussion. And so couples therapy and marriage therapy, if it's a married couple we're talking about, but even for couples just in a relationship, you can do couples counseling to help the two of you learn how to communicate effectively around, hey, if I feel like my needs aren't being met, and you feel like I'm attacking you by saying you're not meeting my needs or that, hey, your needs also aren't being met. Truly effective communication around understanding from both sides what the problem or problems are, and then being able to talk together about a mutually agreeable solution or at least strategies to try to see how they go. And with the understanding of it may not work perfectly the first time. And that's that's often something I have to tell to couples and couples counseling is, okay, so we've established a game plan of what you guys are going to try. Understand it may not go perfectly. It's very easy to slip back into old patterns. And this is a very new thing we're talking about trying. So what I want you to do is acknowledge when you notice your partner doing well. You had made a point earlier that's to this idea. So if we reinforce, if we show positive reinforcement, if we say, I notice that you're trying this thing and I really appreciate it, certainly if they did it well and succeeded, but even if they're falling short, if they're trying but falling short, being that's able huge. to say something like, I really see you're trying with this and I really appreciate you putting in the effort. And then, it doesn't have to be a but statement. It can be an and statement. And also, I'm looking for something a little different in this case and, and try to talk them through. That's another thing I always advise is if you know what you need, do not play games around it. Just ask for what you need in a clear and respectful way. People sometimes get caught up on, well, but they should know what I need. If they don't know it by now, then why should I have to tell them? And I just try to explain, look, we're all at different places in terms of our emotional intelligence and ability to read each other. And in a way, that's like expecting a kindergartner to understand algebra. I don't mean to equate your partner to a kindergartner, listeners, but the idea of we're not all equally at the same skill level with certain things like being able to effectively use coping skills or strategies or know how to apply your partner's love language rather than yours. That comes easier to some of us. Some of us have had more practice than others. And so it is important to recognize the efforts and to recognize that there are going to be slip-ups, to not look at the slip-ups as back to square one, unless they're catastrophic, I guess, but um, to recognize, is this person trying or not? And and really give them credit for that and and appreciate that. Internalize that you appreciate that they're trying. They're doing it for you. You know, sounds to me like trying is a love language too. Solid. <laughs> so let me ask you another question. So with this idea of long-term relationships, which is a lot of people's goals, 
What ideas do you have or from your own experiences? How can a partner continue to charm us throughout a long-term relationship? So as you said, the first few months or even couple of years can be that infatuation phase where it's very easy to be charming. But when the initial awe of everything naturally fades away, what's something that will continue to help us feel charmed in the long term? Look, I think that's something where what you said before becomes relevant again, which is that's something that the person has to communicate, right? And really has to develop some insights into themselves and can't expect another person to fulfill their goals if they themselves don't, if they themselves can't even say what it is. So one thing that, that's kind of interesting to me is uh, Logan Yuri talks a lot in her book about the use of a marriage contract where you basically set up certain expectations. It might be around when are we generally going to spend time together and what kinds of things are we going to do? What new things are we going to try together? And then people review that marriage contract maybe once a year. Some people don't for years and years. And they also have, let's say, weekly check-ins with each other where they discuss. So that's something she says she does with her husband where they check in and say, how did last week go for you? Did you feel supported by me? And how can I make you feel supported this coming week? And so I think a lot would, you know, I'm giving you a little bit of a meta answer, but I think a lot of it is actually going to come out in these kinds of conversations. I think what you said earlier is very true about noticing, and that involves paying attention. So it's amazing to me how many people are um, like really good at their jobs. They're super detail-oriented. They're hyper-focused even. And then when it comes to relationships, somehow they can just kind of not see, hear anything. It just sort of all bypasses them. And then, then that's where you have to kind of wonder, like, is this a priority to you? Is this the priority to you above all else and or at least equal to, to some of your other top priorities? And I think that's just something where you have the conversation with the other person, you find out what kind of stuff they like, and then you try different things and then you pay attention. Did they like the thing you tried? Did they not like the thing you tried? Look, there are people who even take notes on this stuff. Like if they realize I'm not good at remembering stuff, I'm not, maybe I'm not even that good at paying attention. They really kind of make themselves and then take notes and they treat it. I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it again. They treat it a little bit like a job. We use that phrase to treat something like a job, like it's a bad thing. But I don't think it has to be a bad thing. If you view it as a, not to take all the romance out of it, but on some level, a moral obligation, you know, and, and really take it seriously. I, I think things can actually become more romantic if they're done right, right? If you are fulfilling some of these things and, and you are doing the right things for someone, like did you buy flowers for the person? And it turns out those flowers remind the person of their dead grandmother and now they're going to cry every time. Okay, you're not going to get those flowers again. This is a small example, right? But it's the kind of thing where I think you can really learn about the other person. You know, what you were saying about, you know, you have to communicate and why do people say stuff like shouldn't you know this by now i do think there is a, a point there is a point when you've had enough conversations with the person and you've told them something enough times and the same problem has occurred enough times where it does become fair to say no you know what we have reached a point where you should know i agree with you that many people think that too early 
right? And I think that's what you're getting at with, you can't assume the same level of emotional intelligence, the same level of development on some of these issues, the same level of experience, but there does come a point where you say, okay, like I've told you I am allergic to dairy and you continue to put, you know, butter in my food and I could die. I think that's pretty legit, right? And, and this sounds like an extreme example, but this stuff comes up between people where it can sometimes be really bad, like really dramatic stuff where the person just sort of keeps physically or um, psychologically hurting you. And this is where I'm also going to have to throw in one more thing, and then I'm going to hand the microphone back to you, which is pay attention to whether you're dealing with a narcissist because narcissists will intentionally hurt you in the same way over and over and use the same language that you've told them a million times is hurtful to you and then try to gaslight you into saying, hey, well, this isn't that big a deal and you just don't have a sense of humor or you are too thin skinned, blah, 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 all of those things we've covered before. So anyway, throwing all that at you, Rochelle, it's yours. Well, no, and I think I'm glad you made that distinction because absolutely, there's certain things that if you've told them about this one specific thing multiple times and they just aren't listening, that's showing disrespect to you. And so, as you said, like with a narcissist who is going to gaslight you or tell you you're crazy or that you're imagining something or that it's not that big of a deal or that you can't take a joke, that's not somebody who's respecting or listening to you. And so you definitely want to look for that distinction. And you know, listen to our prior episodes that have talked specifically about narcissists to pick up on those flags that they throw. As far as other things I can think about, about what can keep the romance fresh in a long-term relationship. Well, actually, one is following up on something you said about how people can be really great at their jobs, but come home and not be a great partner. You know, I had a really interesting conversation with one of my exes I mean, when we were together about this because he served like a C-suite type of role at his job. And he actually stumbled upon this when we were having a mild argument about something at home. He said, you know what I realize I'm doing is coming home and acting like I'm the boss here. I'm used to being the boss at work all the time. And I'm not taking the time to meaningfully transition when I come home to where I'm not the boss. And I just thought he was spot on with that. And I think it's an important thing for all of us to be intentional about is taking the time to realize we do wear different hats, but before you walk in your door at home, take off your work hat, put on your partner hat, and you know, for whatever other roles in your life as well, take the time to intentionally make that shift from what role you were in coming into that interaction to what role you need to be in being in that interaction. And I think particularly for relationships, that's really important that we serve different roles at work than we do at home. Although I also kind of loved your analogy about, or what you were saying about a relationship being kind of like a job, but in a good way, like how we take pride in our job and we want to succeed in our work and to, and to have a good product we want to stand by with our work. To be able to say the same for our relationship, you know, that's good. That's good. And I think we should aspire to that. But you do want to make sure that you're working as partners in your relationship, even if that's not your role in other other roles in your life. So I wanted to say that. And then the other thing I'm thinking about is just a thought I have about how somebody can keep the romance fresh even after years is maybe do some of the stuff you guys did early on. And, and you mm -hmm. might have to intentionally think about that, treat it like early on in a relationship 
And so whether that be a cutesy little date or again, in my case, some kind of gift, my partner gave me more gifts when we first started dating and they were always very Mm -hmm. sweet little things that he had seen out that reminded him of me. And so something like that, or for me to actually, I'm, I do some gift giving too. And so uh, same kind of thing. I'd see something out or on trips I might take by myself that would remind me of him and would bring that home for him. And I probably have slacked on that some. So I think it can keep the relationship fresh by from time to time being like, when's the last time I did something like what I did in the first few months we were dating and bring that back in. Totally. And I also would say the element of surprise, which we're getting a little Esther Perelian here again, the element of surprise can be helpful there too. And maybe just trying something, it might be a different kind of gift, like something totally different from what your partner gave you before, or it could be like a very zany restaurant that you haven't been to or trying cooking a new dish or whatever the thing is your, your partner is into. I mean, it's obviously going to heavily depend. I'm always thinking about food. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, another thing I think about with that as well is flirting. I don't know that all couples continue to flirt years into their relationship, but I love that. And I, I love when I see, older couples who I assume have been together for a long time, still doing flirty things. You know, one cute thing I saw in a parking lot at the grocery store one time, you know how people will write like just married on like in car paint or whatever on their Uh car. Well, this couple had written just married nine years ago, still very happy about it. And I just thought it was the cutest thing. I love that. You know, just a couple days ago, we were at a, at a rest stop and this, older couple was just walking and and I think he was helping her down the sidewalk right and I noticed them and then my husband noticed them also and we were both like oh that's so cute and uh my, my husband also had a very close relationship with his grandparents and they were a big role model to him in terms of what a marriage could look like and they really did love each other until the end like it was that kind of great romance that you know people watch movies about and and all of that stuff so it is possible it is definitely possible but it doesn't just happen and i think especially with our busy lifestyles with smartphones with a million things buzzing about and beeping at us and demanding our attention right it's becoming maybe more difficult to say all right we're going to put all of that away all of the other demands we fulfilled all of our other obligations for a day and we're really gonna focus on one another and you know one of the other things that came out of the Gottman research is that you need for a functioning relationship you need to have many more positive interactions with each other the negative ones so people who only pay attention when they want to criticize or when something's wrong they're just not going to be very happy so you got to create the things that are going to go well and then appreciate them when the other person does that If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter or on Instagram. 
I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.